production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. And welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, December 8th, and I'm Jody Mitchell, co-chair of the City Club Health Committee and Health Equity Specialist for Aetna Ohio Rise. And I'm a proud City Club member. It is my pleasure to introduce the final forum in this year's Behavioral Health Series. Over the last year, the City Club has hosted several forums to highlight ways we can all strengthen the behavioral health pipeline. We began with an overview of behavioral health care with local experts. We also discussed the gaps in care for our regions unhoused. And in September, we learned more about the rollout of 988 and ways to strengthen crisis care services. If you've missed any of those conversations, you can check them out at the archives at thecityclub.org. Now today, we will focus on the heroes behind the work, the individuals who work day in and day out to provide this much needed care. It is no secret that healthcare providers are experiencing challenges of attracting and retaining staff. Nearly every respondent, 98% in a recent survey, reported difficulties in recruiting staff, and nearly as many cited significant challenges in retaining employees. Add to this, Ohio is particularly understaffed with only one behavioral health care worker for every 560 individuals. And the demand has only grown since then, especially for youth support, where referrals to behavioral health specialists have skyrocketed. There has never been a more urgent need to identify and close the gaps in talent pipeline for social workers, therapists, case managers, substance abuse counselors, and more. What will it take to strengthen the behavioral health care workforce? Joining us on stage today to discuss this is Dr. Stephanie Brooks, Dean of the College of Health at Cleveland State University and Beverly Lozar, Vice President of Behavioral Health Hospital Operations at Metro Health System, and Greg Peoples, Vice President of Programs at Thrive Peer Support. Moderating today's conversation is Habiba Grimes, CEO at the Positive Education Program. If you have questions for our panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794 that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question to at the City Club. And City Club staff will try to work those into our Q&A session at the second half of our program today. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists here today. Hi, thank you, Jody. So I wanna start out this conversation with simply thank you. Thank you for choosing to lead in what is a most urgent time. And thank you for contributing to this conversation today and surfacing this important wisdom. 
Bev, I'm going to start in the provider space with my questions. Um, those, were, those who reported to the Ohio Behavioral Health uh, Council shared that they've been struggling significantly with finding workforce, and that struggle started before this crisis. With the new uh, hospital that Metro Health has opened in what is a most necessary time, we need those beds, what are you seeing? How is our current workforce environment, environment impacting operations and service delivery? I think the greatest re um, challenge we've had with opening the new hospital has been recruitment of staff. Um, it's easy to build a, a building. It's, there's things that we can do with that. But to staff it has been very challenging. Um, that's why we plan to open the hospital in stages. Um, we have 40 beds currently that we're running and we'll get up to 72 in a couple of months. And the reason we've been able to do that is a bit unfortunate because we've had a couple of hospitals close their psychiatric units in the last um, month or two. And so we've been able to take some of those staff to our place to help um, fill our, our needs and to open our beds. The hospital that Metro built was really intended to close the gap of needed beds. But with all the changes that have happened in the last year and since the project started, we're barely keeping even. So I would say it's the one thing that keeps us from opening all 112 beds is, is staffing. Um, so it's caused us to try to think of different types of personnel that we need, um, try to help with behavioral health specialists, which is a, a, a position that we use to help provide our groups and our programming, um, developed a very small pilot program, I guess, with Cleveland State on how to help funnel some of their, their um, psychology majors into that program. But I think it's going to take more and more of those types of things to help us reach out into the schools, get kids incited at an early age, and um, to help them through their way to get to help us staff more beds, staff more patients. Absolutely. Dr. Brooks, I imagine in this time, folks are turning to higher ed and thinking, what are you all going to do to fill this pipeline? Most of the positions that Jody named off in terms of the need are degreed positions, bachelor's, master's level positions. What do you see as being necessary in the higher education space to help? Well, I, I think about this in two different ways. What are some of the short term um, possible solutions, and some of them are, are a little radical. So one of the things that we need to do um, is support our graduates um, once they finish our programs. One of the barriers for um, individuals entering the workforce is credentialing. Um, credentialing um, post-graduation costs money, or sometimes there's supervision involved, clinical hours. And so we really need to find a way to provide um, some support by way of low-cost or no-cost supervision, no-cost or low-cost um, license prep exams, et cetera. Um, we also need to look at easing the financial burden for individuals who come into the workforce. Um, people who, who decide they didn't want to be therapists, social worker, behavioral health clinicians, come in because they have a purpose, they want to serve. Um, they know they're not going to um, become filthy rich by um, doing that. And so what we need to do is find ways to um, subsidize their education, um, which, will, which is really challenging in the higher ed space, given the other challenges that we're facing. But if we can really think about finding ways to 
um, bring other educational institutions together and to strategize together instead of working in silos, I think that we can help. And then finally, I have a lot to say about this, but finally. That's why we're here. <laughs> finally, um, the other thing that I, I think it's really necessary is that a lot of our educational programs um, curriculum is based on our accreditation standards, our disciplines, um, and licensing regulations. So we really train people to be, for the most part, generalists. And the kinds of problems that we are facing right away are very complex. So again, thinking about how we, looking at our curriculum and looking at how we um, modify it in such a way that we really are preparing people and giving them the tools to enter into um, the field. And that may mean things like having special programs like institutes and um, or it may mean doing something radical and um, from advocacy perspective and really working with our licensing boards and our accreditation um, boards. So I'll stop there. All right. <laughs> Greg, in terms of filling this pipeline, peer recovery support is, is a viable option, but I don't know that folks know a lot about it. Can you tell us about Thrive Peer Support and Peer Recovery and how the, the work of peer support recovery specialists could help address this need? Sure, thank you. So first of all, <clears throat> Thrive Peer Recovery Services is uh, the largest uh, peer, pro peer service in the state of Ohio. Uh, a peer is someone with lived experience with substance use and mental health. In the state of Ohio, uh, you can get certified as a peer recovery supporter and uh, bill Medicaid for that service. So we currently, we're about a mid-sized company. We employ about 170 individuals and 75% of those are certified peers. So uh, we have the same sort of workforce uh, issues as everyone else, but I think where it can support is we can be a conduit to service. We can hold people uh, until they can get into care. If you're going to try to get into a provider and it's two months until you can see someone, uh, that you can utilize peer recovery services to uh, bridge that gap, to support getting some of the social determinants of health things you need, um, housing, food, uh, clothing, anything to assist you in getting to those treatment services. So. Yes, and I'm just imagining being able to engage someone with, with that lived experience can help bring down the level of, of acuity a, a person is experiencing in that given moment. Right, I think where, where peer work uh, excels is that initial engagement into care. Hey, I've been there. I know what you're going through. Uh, I'm you know, not here to judge you. I can, you can, I can walk with you down this path. And it's kind of uh, you know, showing by example that that can happen. I think there's a trust that's built into that. Um, and you know, it's, it is a paraprofessional, but we do a lot of training. There is certification you get. And once you come into the agency, you also get an additional 40 hours of training covering all kinds of things from boundaries to cultural competency to uh, understanding how to tell your story and make that a part of treatment and not, you know, that it's, that it's a positive event and how you work that. And just ongoing training uh, involved there. So yes, it's kind of supporting the clinicians with, uh, with uh, peer work is definitely a support we can provide. Yeah. Beyond lived experience, something I'm curious about is how we begin to address the disparities in terms of the presence of people from minoritized backgrounds. So increasing the diversity of the behavioral health workforce was a challenge before COVID, now exacerbated again. 
What are your thoughts for how we lower barriers to, to those professions or create other opportunities for folks with shared identities, with folks with different racial, ethnic, gender identities to, to receive care from people who are more like them? Well, I'll go ahead and start that. I, I think, uh, first of all, just the idea of peer work is, hey, uh, this is someone that's gonna work with you that has similar experiences to you. So the idea of that is, is awesome and we support that. I think it starts with training and education of those that work in the field to understand how to reach out, what communities to connect to, connecting to schools. I think connecting to universities and you know, just, I think, re better recruitment. Um, I think the one thing that we try to do is when we go into a community is not say that we're not bringing outsiders in we go to the community and say we're looking for individuals that have been through your programs that have lived experience they've graduated from your programs they're in long-term recovery we'd love to hire folks that that you already know that can serve those that are coming through your programs now so we're, we're hoping that 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 would fill in some of that but clearly there's a lot of work to do and um, you know, I think it's part part of that is just an awareness on our part. I'm gonna pick up on Please. that. So um, I think one of the things that we need to do is to, to really get to middle school and um, and begin to expose um, folks in the community, kids in the community, to behavioral health and the many fields in behavioral health. It's you know they're they're the big disciplines that people hear about, but there's so many different things that people can do, and um, to assist and provide services. And then we need to. Um, and this is a longer term sol solution, we need to really encourage our students to go into academia. Um, people, students wanna see people who look like them, who understand their lived experience, who understand um, the community's lived experience that they wanna provide treatment to or services to. And um, so that means we need to also focus in on not only the pipelines, if you will, uh, and um, the students that we recruit, we need to target and recruit um, diverse students, but we also need to encourage and target, recruit, and retain faculty in, in um, these areas. That is a, a really big areas, and I've seen where that can make a, a difference for students from diverse backgrounds coming into a program where they feel seen um, and know that they're gonna be respected because, and, and, and therefore, I sort of think about this as isomorphous, um, Therefore, they, they, they're able to talk freely about the kinds of challenges that they see in their communities without feeling judged. Um, so those are some of the things that I think we need to be doing. I think we have to create opportunities for them to learn while they're earning. You know, whether um, that's, um, you know, not everybody can afford to go to college for full time or go through a trade full time. Um, so we have to look and reach out into those high schools and early college years, creating internships or pathways mm -hmm. so that Maybe they start out as a nursing assistant, but then we have a program that can help them move into an RN position or move f further on into graduate programs. I think we have to do conscious efforts with that and we have to reach out into the schools. Um, I can remember as a student in Euclid High School that I used to come out to Huron Road Hospital um, for w monthly lectures by our physicians and it, um, it was someplace I ended up working at very many years later, but um, I think we have to do more and more of that just to get the kids engaged. Um, I think this is there is a stigma about behavioral health in the community. I think we have to introduce that to the students and to the children to see that it's 
it's not what they think. It's not what their parents think. It's, it's not what the community thinks, but we have to help them see what it really is. Absolutely, and, and contribute to how it's, mm -hmm. it's developed. Mm -hmm. You know, as I listen, I'm hearing what sounds less and less like pipelines and streams mm -hmm. and how these streams might merge together. We have historically siloed systems. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about public schools partnering differently with health systems like Metro or organizations like mine, organizations like Cleveland State University, Thrive Peer Support, what, what is it gonna take for us to, pull, to dismantle or make the boundaries between these systems more porous so that they work more collaboratively in regard to building the workforce? I absolutely agree with you. I think that um, that in institutions um, really sometimes just get into the mode of survival themselves and forget about some of the bigger problems. And, and so to, my philosophy is that we're stronger together. And so I would love for um, the institutions in, in higher education and, and some of the community facilities to get together. We know what we need to do in terms of solutions, but we don't have a strategy. We don't have a collective strategy of how to attack the problem. And, and, and from my perspective, that's what's needed along with the investment um, that um, is required at this point to go into behavioral health. We've dug ourselves in a pretty, pretty big hole pre-COVID um, because of the stigma around behavioral health. And it's gonna take a giant lift for us to really see behavioral health equity. Mm. The same type of um, silos that you see even among the providers. We're mm -hmm. all working in separate pieces and what really needs to happen, whether it's on a pipeline standpoint or on a community care standpoint, is we need to find ways to work together with our competitors, with the other organizations, um, and to recognize that it takes all of us providing our specialty piece of the pie to, to be able to provide full, a full scope of services for the community. But it's very difficult to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Brooks and I were talking that we don't connect enough with um, colleges and connecting. We've actually changed our an HR position to be a workforce development position. And one of those is connecting out to the, the schools. And uh, we just have never done that enough. And, you know, uh, another thing that comes to mind is generally we tend to work well with those that have similar payers and so crossing across different programs is we get paid differently and so your incentives are different and you know I know we'll probably end up talking about alternative payment models but that does help with some interaction uh, and Bev and I were talking we actually have um, peers that are placed uh, on site at uh, Metro Health, including some other hospitals here, and we're there around the clock. And it's, so hospitals are typically, you know, acute and quick, and let's get people in the community. Peers traditionally longer term and building relationship. So that's been a, it's been a, uh, a relationship building to say how can we meld those two together? And it's worked out really well, but I, again, understanding our roles and that, hey, we're not working against each other, it's the same individuals and we can help connect them to those services. Hey, I know a social worker, they give you a piece of paper, say, hey, go connect to this community center, but if a peer can say, I'm gonna take you there, I'm gonna call them with you, I'm gonna make sure and follow up that you got there, that's where we can coordinate better. Wow. So this um, notion of payment models, it, it feeds into an issue of quality of life, mm -hmm. 
for professionals who choose behavioral health careers. So I wanna elevate for a moment and just talk about professional quality of life for folks who are choosing these careers inside systems that are learning how to collaborate and dismantle silos, but right now they are very much what they are. Bev, I'm thinking about the staff you've brought in who are um, suffering some trauma from, from organizational disruption and what that does. So can we talk about quality of life for these professions and how we build them up in that regard? Um, with regard to the, the trauma, you know, I think that it is a, it is a small community in, in Cleveland, especially on, you know, on the east side. There's probably not a behavioral health nurse that I haven't even met or one of us haven't met or worked with. <laughs> I've been in the community a long time. So when we bring them in to try to really help welcome them and let them know that it's not the metro way, but if you guys have a good idea, we need to engage them in our staffs. We need to help them hear what good ideas were they doing at their organizations. We have to welcome them in to make them feel um, welcome and make them know that there's many ways to get things accomplished. So it's been, that's been helpful um, to just be able to, you know, I go up on the floors and I see my old friends from St. V's or I see some folks from, that I've worked with from Laurelwood. Um, they're very excited to be at that place because they had a place to work, but it's, it is very difficult um, coming from an organization that is, that's closing or has closed their doors. Absolutely. And Bev, you know, I was just thinking about um, the things that we need to do at institutions or agencies and, and hospitals when we um, employ someone. But I also think that we need to start helping clinicians or people in, in healthcare period prior to um, going into employment to, to learn how to take care of themselves. Um, and then, you know, we're focused on productivity usually on the work side. I mean, I've been in places where you're expected to, to see X amount of clients a week. What we're not intentional about is how to create an environment that supports a person's emotional well-being. And so, but yeah, the whole folks are, are really working in some challenging times and they need to take care of themselves and they need to understand themselves. And so we've known about burnout for a long time. I prefer to refer to it as moral injury. Um, and the work that folks need to do as they are providing services to others is what I refer to as soul work. Um, this is stuff that in, inside the agencies, we have to find models and ways to really create um, ways to support one another. So we have team meetings, but, but you know, we could also create space for people to, to get together and talk about not just the, the, the skills or the competencies, but how you're doing and what have you been doing. It's sort of like a peer supervision. Um, but that's focused on self or the behavioral health worker. Yeah, I'll add to that because I agree with that. I think to take it a step further, I think employers have an obligation to help set up a culture that supports individuals. That I mean, we know that people get into this field because you have a connection to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I said 75% of our folks are uh, certified peers, but 90% of our staff are in recovery. And so it, they, believe, they believe in the mission. But the reality is the work is hard. You're a case manager. You're a nurse, you're a peer, you're in the front line, you have productivity, the pay is not great. There's a stress level there. And I think not, to not understand that, I mean the average time, when I was doing case management, the average time was under a year. And, and sometimes those are initial programs that people stay in, but I think understanding that you have to set up a, uh, 
a, an environment that supports individuals. Like, I'll give you an example. In 2021, we saw almost 100% turnover in our peers. You just you can't keep a workforce. We're having a hard enough time bringing people in. So we sat down at the beginning of 2022 and said, what are we going to do to change that? Mm -hmm. And so we monitor every month what's our turnover rates. Mm -hmm. And we've got it down to 50%, which is, sounds great. Hey, we've dropped it 50%, but that's still 50% of your staff are turning over. And that, that shows you that you have to implement things that support it. Things we've tried, mentorships. So someone that is uh, a, more of a senior peer is now a mentor. They meet with a, a group of, of peers regularly. They also have team leads and supervisors, and it's an expectation that, you, that those individuals support your own on the, around the way. A uh, lot of uh, non-salary-based um, things we try to do, um, trying to build that culture of support and say, it's okay if I'm stressed, I'm having a bad day. Here's the things you need to do to support that, and not just be punitive, because that I, we can tend to be that way because the margins are small on salary-wise, and if, you know, if you're not meeting your productivity, but just understand there are other supports we can put into place. Thank you. So in the last few minutes we have before we turn to audience questions, I'm curious about the brass tacks of pay equity for these difficult jobs that involve soul work. What thoughts have you been reflecting on around unique or innovative models for reimbursement and pay? Greg, I have one yeah, sure, I'll start. I, two things. One is, I think, on workforce development. We need to put, as a system, as a community, as a state, money into allowing folks time to get certifications, to get some experience, to before they can get some internships, get some. Uh, we've had a, a successful um, internship workforce development that we got through the local uh, Cuyahoga Mental Health and Recovery Board that has allowed us to uh, take 10 weeks to. Uh, bring peers in, train them, allow them to get certification, do placements so they can see what might best fit them. Um, I think that's one side of it. I think the future has to do with alternative payment models. And this is getting away from fee-for-service, where you provide a service, we'll give you a, we'll give you a, a fee, versus something that's a little more uh, value-based or goal-based or there's some risk-reward there. And we've, we've been experimenting with this over the last couple years with a couple of the managed care organizations. And they're trying to, and there's some pressure from managed care organizations, to do alternative payment models. It's just taking some time uh, to switch the model and, and what makes sense. What's a goal that makes sense, right? And there are some obvious ones, like for a hospital, you don't, there's, you don't come back for a readmit. So how, do we, how can we support that? How do we um, pay for that? Uh, one of the models we have is if someone is connected to primary care, we get a payment for that. Mm -hmm. So, the, I mean, it's unique to say that it's not just, hey, I'm going to hang out with you, which sometimes people think that's what peers do. But if we have a, uh, something you can point to that's been accomplished, that you get paid for that. Now, it's not easy to do. There's risks involved. Um, and the whole system's not ready for it at times. So the, but I do think that's the future. I think one of the other things we need to be doing to help retain folks in the, in the field um, is really build internal career paths for them. You know, if they're starting as a case manager, what's the next step up for them and, and can we have them have a mentor or a, a, a guide who helps them achieve that in a year and listening to them to see what, where are their ultimate goals, help them move up the career path because, you know, we can keep them developed, keep them moving on forward 
and at some point even putting perhaps some in a leadership track because there's got to be people to help lead these organizations when some of us go home and retire and put our feet up for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to look to... We're about to begin the audience Q&A. For our live stream audience, I'm Jody Mitchell, co-chair of the City Club's Health Committee and the Health Equity Specialist of Etna Ohio Rise. And today we are discussing ways to strengthen the behavioral health care talent pipeline. We are joined by Dr. Stephanie Brooks, Dean of the College of Health at Cleveland State University, Beverly Lozar, Vice President of Behavioral Health Hospital Operations at Metro Health System, and Greg Peoples, Vice President of Programs at Thrive Peer Support. Moderating the conversation is Habiba Grimes, CEO at Positive Education Program. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text your question to 330 541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into our program. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon. We have a text question. CMSD has invested in programs that fast-tracks high schoolers into career paths like nursing and behavioral health, Lincoln West being one of those schools. Where are the challenges for those kids who are part of this innovative program as they head to college or entry-level jobs and what is needed to fill the gaps? I'll take part of that. Um, from educational perspective and thinking about um, those students moving into any degreed program um, to prepare themselves for the workforce, is that we're gonna really need to help them understand, you know, want first what, what they, are signing up to, so better prepare them for that. But, but on the other side, we need to make sure that the pay equity is there. Um, what we, what is difficult, I think, is that we have folks who come in who are really passionate and full of purpose, and they want to do the the work, um, but um, but they can't sustain themselves because of the pay. So, so while we are creating this pipeline. Um, we need to make sure that whatever work setting that they find themselves in, they're getting the, the well-deserved pay um, for their work so they don't have to work two and three jobs like a lot of us therapists often do um, in order to make ends meet. I would add only that like, it would be good if we did education to high schoolers about what a job entails. Like, what does nursing mean? Uh, what does it mean to be a social worker? Wh which, which degrees give you certification that you can provide service with a bachelor's? What do you need a master's? And I think that would help kids make decisions going into college. I mean, I've had three kids go through college. They've all changed their yeah, majors. It I, know, I know it doesn't matter what you tell them. They're, they're going to do their own. But I think better education about like, what, I'm looking, what I'm looking at. Um, I wish someone would have done that to me. So, yeah. And one more thing. There are some behavioral health fields that are out there currently are not reimbursable, like music therapy and art therapy. Those are viable careers. Talented therapists, 
yet they, they can't earn a good wage. And so we need to open up the payment system for that group because we need to expand our workforce. Uh, kudos to the City Club for doing this series on behavioral health because I think this is the third or the fourth one or the four that I've been to. My question is for Dr. Brooks. Dr. Brooks, uh, let's imagine I'm 18 years old. I know that's a stretch. And I want to I become a therapist. So could you tell me what I could expect if I apply to the College of Health at CSU? What kind of education courses am I going to have to take and what kind of clinical training would I get in that four-year program? Thank you. So I can tell you what um, you know. I I think that you will get, and so in the College of Health right now we have a, a social work program, so a bachelor's and a master's um, program, and um, and some of those graduates do go in the area of behavioral health. So you're going to learn about basic kinds of counseling um, skills. You're going to learn about policy. You're going to learn about ethics, um, and. Um, you may learn, have a couple of courses that focus on specific problems that people deal with, such as trauma. Um, and that, that's, like I said earlier, it's a very generalist kind of um, focus that you have. There are some menu options that you have. Um, you can do a su substance use certificate if you desire to do that, but that's not required. But I don't know about some, some of you are clinicians, majority of clients, whether they they indicate they have a substance use um, problem, struggle with some level of substance use. So we don't train our clinicians to do that. So my ideal curriculum would be one in which we make sure that we are not only teaching our, our students to be culturally responsive, um, but they are learning about complex trauma. They're learning how to deal with catastrophes. We have all these natural disasters that are happening right now and a workforce that is not prepared to deal with it. We need youth therapists and, um, and so we need to prepare folks for that. That's a viable market where um, we don't have enough people, and I think the people, we could scale that up very easily. And neurodiversity is another area where we need to do more work. So are you ready to sign up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tina. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janine Gergel with the Woodruff Foundation. The Woodruff Foundation, the Bruning Foundation, and several other funders have recently come together to talk about how we can grow the early childhood mental health workforce. And we know this segment of the field is very different from other segments of the mm -hmm. field in that you're often working with parents and families as much as children and working in homes, not offices. I'd love to get your ideas on ways to strengthen that segment of the workforce. I'll go ahead and start. I, all right. Well, I think it's a complicated system for sure, and I think Ohio Rise and moving towards Ohio Rise is the system's way of trying to work through some of the complications of that. I think that will help with some of the pay. Uh, you know, again, part of the issue is, is I think compensation for that. I think the stress levels are higher with working with youth and families because it is complicated. Someone gets into this, hey, you have this romantic vision of working with kids, and it's not just working with that individual and working with play therapy. You have to deal with families and it's ongoing and there's court systems and guardians and it gets complicated. So I do think that educating folks on what that entails, understanding systems better, systems working better together, and that I think I know as, as workforce that we support those individuals that come in working in the field a little better. Um, you know, 
one thing that we've tried to do is kind of a hybrid with clinicians, that you're some in person, some, some virtual. And I think just the reality of the new workforce is understanding that that's what folks are expecting and how can we utilize that. Certain doesn't work well with all populations, but there is some, some, uh, some work you can do there. I think being thoughtful in planning the support that the staff are going to need. The staff who work in children and adolescent units um, are going to be under additional stresses because of having to work with their families and it's all heartbreak and we relate to those what if those were our children so really being thoughtful about how do we provide that support how do we provide that avenue for them to to receive this the support that they need the, the you know where can they um, voice their frustrations where can they voice their their concerns and making that a safe environment and then providing them that's that uh, services that they need as well to take care of the kiddos and I'd like to add, um, I'm, I'm a couple and family therapist as well, so this, we need to talk about nested systems, but teaching people how to really work systemically from a clinical perspective. Um, most educational programs focus on either the youth as an individual and not how to work with the, the family system. And so I think we need to do both. And um, we also need to, again, talk about silos. You know, we've put child work over here and adult work over here. That's something that needs to be really foundational in um, the curriculum. And my experience is that a lot of students are afraid to work with kids. And they're afraid because we haven't provided them with the tools. So part of what we need to do is really look at what kind of tools we need to provide these students with our graduates with in order to be effective clinically to think systemically, learn how to work in nested systems, and, um, and really introduce them to evidence-informed approaches of working with kids um, in their curriculum. Hi, I'm Stephanie Lewis, LPCCS, um, Northeast Regional Manager for Ohio Rise. I am also an internship instructor, instructor with Ursuline Counseling Art Therapy Program. So I'm very, very passionate about this topic and I appreciate all of your, your thoughts and feedback. Um, so I'm wondering, what do we do about our competing Health, helping professional fields like coaching and all of these very rapid avenues to having a fee-for-service coaching, wellness advocate, consultant, mindset coach, and all of these on-trend, non-licensed um, avenues to treatment. No you no know, shade to that at all, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. But I, I have seen, I have seen students. My students are burning out, and they're graduating in May, and they're done. So a lot of my work is coaching them to remain in the field after they've paid that hefty bill to Ursuline, but they have all these options and peers that are going to coaching trainings online, seven, eight week, twelve weeks, and getting paid, they're getting paid, they're getting paid without credentialing. What do we do about that? How do we address the competition? <laughs> I, I, I think we need to educate the public. Um, and um, we have not done that. We have not come out strong as um, licensed um, providers and say, here are the differences here. And, I too know individuals who have gone into executive coaching and wellness coaching and they can charge anything and, and work with a particular 
a segment, and yet I, I know what kind of training they've received. So we need to, to campaign and educate the public on the difference between a coach and, and uh, a credible behavioral health therapist. And no shade there either. Well, behavioral health therapist. <laughs> You know, I, one thing I would add is not outside of that, but just in general, like we should lean on systems that understand where, not just, we all know the workforce is, is lower than it needs to be, but what are the specifics? And how can we get something that like tells us where the, where the shortcomings are and then we can work with higher education to say that's where we need, this is the trend, we're trending in this direction, let's support folks in this way. And so you can help folks get jobs. We, there is competition here. And I think we all compete for, that's the problem. We compete for the same social workers, the same nurses. But understand that, like, is there a way we can work within our systems to, to uh, figure out where those gaps are and, and, and support each other? It's not easy. I mean, it's going to take some advocacy um, and uh, people that understand systems and working with uh, managed care organizations to say, what are the trends out there? Sharing data. We don't share data enough. Sharing data would be able, one way where we can say, hey, these are the trends that, that, uh, that a managed care who sees large populations are seeing. Uh, I did a stint at managed care and we did geo-mapping of services. Mm -hmm. We knew that certain services were heavier in the Southwest versus the Northeast, versus like, more inpatient hospitalization in, in the Cleveland area, more outpatient and MAT services in certain area. Just understanding trends and that will help you identify what sort of staffing you'll need, what sort of higher education needs to support your area. Uh, what sort of services are supported in your area? I just, there's, I don't think we understand systems enough. I think we have to learn to speak the language of managed care organizations too, in that we have to show them that putting that dollar forward today is going to pay back 20 bucks because they're going to have a approved health of, the, of, the, of their population that they're serving. I think that, and we do that through data, we do that through outcome measurements, we do that through um, looking at what results do we have. Um, being involved with a licensed therapist, what's the um, recidivism rate, what is the return, um, what is the outcome of their life quality. Um, I think we don't do that again, as a, we can do that, we probably do that all in our own little houses, Absolutely. but we need to do it in a, in a more broader way so that we can have a little bit of clout when you talk to various organizations and in contracting for service. I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I do think that, uh, you know, as you said, there's some work to be done there, and I think that, uh, Sharing the data is the first thing. Clearly, if we're going to move to an alternative payment model, we A, have to share data. We have to figure out attribution, and that's how do we know what members are ours. And, and I, managed care organizations aren't quite there yet. And until we figure that out, it's harder to say, this is your risk pool, these are your clients, this is how we can pay you. They know their trends, they know their populations, and I think the more we work across systems, understanding payers and what drives them and what's driving their cost and their populations. It's not like they don't have that data. We just don't share it and communicate that enough. I just wanted to add, um, this is a call to action. I mean, for all of us. I mean, I think about this as we are the system. And so collectively, we need to really, um, you know, sit down at the table, begin to talk about strategy of how we want to approach some of these barriers and, um, and work collectively to do so. And so, call me an idealist, I'm a social worker, and, uh, but we are the system. We, we, we are the ones that are in these, these, these jobs. And so, uh, we need to push the boundaries. Yes. 
Since I hear about students burning out, I'm reflecting too on this notion of professional quality of life mm -hmm. and how that gets woven in. Well, just one last thing. You know, I think I've been in the system a long time, 30 plus yeah. years, but I don't think I, the first part of my career didn't spend time doing that. I mean, we have China Darrington here from our company. She is our policy and advocacy person. Her job is to understand the system and be involved in statewide meetings and, and systems meetings. And, mm -hmm. and I just, we have never, we haven't spent enough time doing that, that you can't be passive in this. We have to be active, mm -hmm. as you said. And like, mm -hmm. what, how do we do that as a provider company, as a system to just be active in that work? We have another text question. Right now, Say Yes in Cleveland is facing a huge funding cut supporting their wraparound support specialists. This seems to be a huge step backwards for youth behavioral health. What can be done to prioritize the pipeline and funding for programs like Say Yes? I don't know, in general, I would say advocacy and um, you know, uh, this, and, and now in, in Ohio, you can, uh, that's another pitch for peer services, you can now bill for youth peer and family peer. And I just, again, understanding where the needs are and advocating for, for finance, financial support in that area, working with your local boards. Um, there's a lot of uh, ARPA and SOAR money out there right now trying to dive into your local legislators and what, how can we figure that out? Hello, my name is Dr. Kristen Rice, and I'm the Executive Director of the American Academy of Physical Therapy. And we're here in Cleveland to kind of talk about healthcare disparities, and so I've done a lot of research um, about ACE testing for um, kids and how that can lead to chronic diseases. Um, also know about um, there's a link between mental health and diabetes and mental health and high blood pressure. So what are we doing about mental health and taking care of the chronic diseases? I think it's um, you know, certainly we all talk about integrated behavioral health care and how when a patient's coming for an internal medicine or a primary care visit, that's when you have that patient captured and if an, a need is identified, having them co-located with a, a mental, health mental health therapist, a psychologist, or someone who can provide that needed service right then, um, it's proven to be very effective. We have that in many of our practices within the metro health system. I think that's part of what we have to look at is how can we capture that right then, because we, know all, we all know about show rates for regular visits, any kind of visits for our patients, um, at best maybe 75%. So if we can capture them at the time that they're in the office to, to provide that full set of services, um, we're gonna have much better results than if we schedule them for an appointment later on. It takes an investment in a, um, of people, and an investment of um, staff that we may or may not have, because again, we have shortages, but I think it's a worthwhile investment for us. I think it comes down to focus, understanding that what, what should be focused on. Some of that's payer-based. So uh, we have one contract in particular that we get paid for what's called gap closures. So a gap closure could be, the, hey, they don't have a dentist, or they don't have primary care. If you close that gap, we get a payment. And that's, that's kind of melding what a goal would be versus how you get paid for things. Uh, I think part of it is we don't know all those, um, I guess, areas of risk for our clients. Uh, just throw out an example. Uh, one of the things that I know a lot of providers are looking at is starting to collect Z codes. And that's looking at social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. Do we even have an idea of what issues that our clientele has? We know in general that there's housing issues and economic issues. 
Um, so, but if we actually could track that and give that information and share that information, um, that that would give you a baseline of where you're, what you're looking at and what you need to put resource into. Greg, that's a, a great point. There, there is such a gap. There's a whole invisible group of folks we know nothing about their needs um, because they're, they're not engaged in the behavioral health system. And um, so we need to know more about what we know and, um, and we need to find ways to engage the, the clients who are out there who are invisible and who are, are reluctant or have not used um, a behavioral health person. And one way to do that is through um, you know, whole care of the person, primary or integrative care. Hi, I'm Trina Darrington. I have the good fortune to be a behavioral health advocate, and I get to sit at a lot of tables where funding opportunities are eventually going to come out in like 12 to 24 months. And I liked what Dr. Brooks said about cross-system collaboration and that we need to be talking to each other. But by the time the funding opportunities are in place and, and soliciting proposals, uh, what has happened is that we have narrowed the eligibility criteria of the credential who can provide that or mm -hmm. uh, the system that can provide that. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about youth behavioral health needs and, and needs for workers to be providing that. But I just looked at a funding opportunity from the feds that said they are only looking at master's level education majors to be able to provide this very low payment service. So what's the incentive to go into this? So what my question is, is what should I be integrating into the conversations to make these lawmakers realize you can't tie our hands this much? You have to allow us some flexibility and fluidity to respond to the trends, to the needs, or else people will pay somebody who got eight weeks of coaching a fee for payment because it's more aligned with the direct needs they have. Right. And I'm going back to those social determinants of health. So I think this is, <laughs> I think your question is parallel to what we are experiencing in behavioral health. There's some behavioral health disciplines that have been stigmatized. Um, and there's this myth about what the people can and cannot do in these various disciplines. So again, we need to demystify um, that and really educate lawmakers about, you know, social workers can, can do this, licensed professional counselors, creative arts and therapies, expressive therapies. In fact, the expressive therapies and creative arts therapies are very effective in working with kids. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and there are a number of those folks who are also credentialed in other areas, but yet they've been squeezed out. Um, because of the myth of um, their competencies. So we have some work to do on that level. And again, it goes back to advocating and, and, and campaigning um, and, and really talking about and doing some research around the outcomes of treatment in these various areas. Um, one of the reasons I do what I do because it provides me with a seat at the table. So we need to get folks at the table. Um, so that they can um, really speak to these things. So that's an excellent question. Thank you for that. Good afternoon. I'm Cheryl Wills, and I am Vice Chair for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion and Chief of Child Psychiatry at Metro Health Systems. Thank you for the conversation. My question is going back to the silos, because I do a lot of consulting. I'm also a forensic psychiatrist, and when I survey jails and prisons and other facilities, mm -hmm. We always go back to the silos. 
and that's one of the hardest barriers to break. So my question is, what are we doing to operationalize thinking outside of the box, thinking creatively so that we can move through those barriers and address those pipelines more equitably? For example, look at early childhood education. We have plenty of programs around school, uh, and schools offer associate's degrees. How often are we going to those schools and recruiting people um, to perhaps do social work or children's social work? They already have the background with the developmental familiarity. What are we doing to up the ante and help them move to a higher level? Thank you. Dr. Wills, I think your, your points are straight on in that we have to do a better job. We have to find the resources, the people who can go out. Um, it's very um, effort consuming. It takes a lot of effort to go out of these schools and have times to work with the programs and to identify those folks, but it's something we have to do. We have to find a way to um, dedicate resources to workforce development, or we're just gonna be talking about this 10 years from now about the same thing. Um, so we really need those folks who can go out to the schools, um, talk to the students, but just talking to them is not, then you've got to, it's, it's a relationship that you have to build with the various organizations and with the students and with the teachers so that they're thinking about us when we're not even there about talking to the students about opportunities, talking to the guidance counselors if they still have those in school. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but really being able to talk to the folks, but it, it takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of resources that I think as organizations, we just have to start, we just have to dedicate time and, and money to that. Yeah, I, I, so this is week 15 for me on the job at Cleveland State. <laughs> um, and, but I've already uh, been in conversations um, and planning with some of our existing programs that we have where we go out to schools, we also bring students on campus. And so currently I'm, I'm looking at how do we do that um, frequently, regularly. Um, that it's not just a one-off summer program, that is something that we look at doing four to six times a year. In addition to what, you know, how do we go out and where do we go out to um, sort of looking at that because some of our programs um, have, you know, developed special relationships in areas and that's where they go and visit and the teachers know them and the guidance counselors know them. But we need to, to look at, you know, one, thinking about the gap who we need in behavioral health care, are we also frequently in those schools where um, those students are currently being educated? So I think, you know, I think universities, higher ed, had, have an obligation to um, go out, get students and bring them in twofold. It, it, it demystifies all higher education and what it's all about. Um, it, and and it also provides an opportunity for people to experiment without any risk in various areas. Um, I'm not invested in whether you're a social worker, a family therapist, a psychologist, I'm invested in you doing the work. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us to expose put that students to, to that. And, think, and, and psychiatry is another area that if we don't take care of this soon, we're not gonna have docs out there. Any other final comments? Mm -hmm. no? All right. I want to personally thank Dean Brooks, Beverly and Greg, and Habiba for this forum and for enlightening us 
Um, I think this dialogue is going to continue going on, and um, hopefully it planted some seeds among our audience today as well. Today's forum is part of our behavioral health series presented by Metro Health with additional support from the Woodruff Foundation and also from the Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland. Big thanks to each of you for your continued support of the City Club. We would also like to welcome and thank guests at tables by Metro Health, the Metro Health Foundation, Positive Education Program, Sisters of Charity Health System, and the Woodruff Foundation. Thank you for being here with us today. Up next for the City Club tomorrow, Friday, December 9th, Cleveland School CEO Eric Gordon will sit down with Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb for a conversation about leadership, their shared hopes for Cleveland's children, and the work ahead for the next leader to take the baton. Tickets are sold out for this forum, but you can view the live stream and learn about this forum and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to our panelists, and thank you members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Jody Mitchell, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.